Well, today I want to tell you a story about a man who quit way too soon. His name was Mr. Darby, and he worked in Maryland, make, working long hours for little pay. And he had heard that if he moved to California, he might have the opportunity to strike it rich. It was the days of the gold rush, and he wanted to stake his claim. And so he did just that. He moved from Maryland to California. Uh, he purchased the rights to a portion of a gold mine. All he had was a shovel and a pickaxe, and he started digging. Well, the thing that motivated Mr. Darby was caring for his family. Mr. Darby wanted to provide for them. He wanted to send money back to them. And he even dreamed of the day when he would make so much money that he would never have to work again and his children wouldn't have to work again. At first, he had a little bit of hope. Mr. Darby started to harvest a few ounces of gold, and he got so excited that he even went into debt to buy more machinery, just knowing that he was close. He was going to strike it rich. But over a period of days turned to weeks, and weeks turned to months, and as he drilled and drilled, and as he dug and dug, he found an ounce here and an ounce there, but it was never enough to pay the bills, and it was never enough to get out of debt. And finally, after right about a year, Mr. Darby gave up hope. He sold his business, he sold his equipment for pennies on the dollar to a junk man who worked near the mine, and he told himself, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. If I was in bad shape before I left Maryland, I'm in much worse shape now that I've got to go back to Maryland with less than I left. But the story doesn't end there. We're told that the junk man had a friend who knew something about gold mines and fault lines. And so the junk man uh, asked his friend about, could there possibly be gold somewhere in the mine? He did a little bit of calculating and sure enough, he discovered that Mr. Darby, after digging and digging and clawing and clawing, had stopped three feet short of the mother load. Three feet short of striking it rich. Three feet short of never having to work again a day in his life. How do you think Mr. Darby felt when he heard the news back in Maryland that he had stopped three feet short and there was nothing he could do about it. The biggest struggle of his life was this close to being the biggest blessing of his life, but he quit. If you could go back in time and tell Mr. Darby anything, what would you say? You might say, don't quit. Don't give up. You're so close. The, the night is the darkest just before the dawn. Mr. Darby, there's hope. Just keep digging. This morning, I want to come to you in that same spirit and tell you, just keep going. The biggest struggle of your life may, be, may prove to be the biggest blessing of your life, but you'll never know if you quit on the Lord or if you quit on that relationship. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but I'm confident there are men and women and students and even kids in here today, and you're discouraged. You almost didn't come, but you came, and, and you're wondering, is there a word of hope for me? And the answer is an emphatic yes. In the Easter story, there is hope for you. Here's the main point I want to drill down into this morning, simply this. Easter means that the worst thing is not the last thing. Easter means that the worst thing is not the last thing. 
And we're going to take the next few minutes to look at the Easter story and explain what that means and help you carry this message on into your week and on into the rest of your year. If you have your notes or your bulletin, feel free to follow along or on the app. Of course, everything will be on the screens. Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Luke 24. Luke 24, Robert read the first 12 verses of that a few minutes ago, but let's look at the last portion of that chapter. Luke 24, starting in verse 36. Let me invite you to stand if you're physically able. I'll read from the NIV, but of course you can always follow along on the screens. Luke 24, 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So why is the worst thing not the last thing? Why is the worst thing not the last thing? Well, three reasons we're going to see this morning. Number one, God will trade our old bodies for new bodies. God will trade our old bodies for new bodies. We see the pattern in Jesus himself. Jesus, in verses 37 through 39, appears to his disciples, and he appears not as a ghost, but as a human being with flesh and bones. He says, here, shake my hand, hug me, touch me, know that I am alive. I'm not just a ghost. I am here physically. I rose from the grave with a body. And then Jesus asks for something to eat, and they give him a piece of fish. It's important to understand that everything in the Bible just isn't written for some mysterious spiritual meaning. There, I read some commentaries this week that were asking, what is the meaning of the fish? Like, what does it mean that he ate a piece of broiled fish? What hidden message, one commentary, what hidden message is in the broiled fish? There's no hidden message. Luke was being a great historian. He was just including a, another fact to prove that Jesus had risen from the grave. I mean, the hidden message may be that you're supposed to go to Tidewater this afternoon and, and have Easter lunch. Or if you're on a budget, Captain D's, you know. But, but, if, but it's just Jesus had a physical body and he, he needed to eat. The Easter story reminds us that God cares about the physical world just as much as he cares about the spiritual world. N.T. Wright wrote this, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters. The injustices and pains of the present world must now be addressed with the news that healing and justice and love have won. If Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. Notice this next phrase. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. Easter means that the world where injustice, violence, degradation are endemic 
God is not prepared to tolerate such things. Take away Easter and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of the material world. Take it away and Freud was probably right to say that Christianity is just wish fulfillment. Take it away and Nietzsche was probably right to say it was for wimps. The Easter message gives us hope that one day we too will have physical new bodies. Have you looked at pictures of yourself from years ago lately? You know, it's, it can be really depressing. Uh, my girls see pictures of me in high school and, and they'll ask, you know, they try to be nice, but dad, what, what happened? And I don't really know how to, how to take that. You know, one day, a few years ago, the girls asked me, dad, do you have a six pack? And I was like, oh yeah, it's just hidden under a lot of love. You know, see, I would much rather have a keg than a six pack any day. And so sh- certainly, um, that's probably not a joke to tell in church, but um, <laughs> let's quote some scripture. Philippians chapter three and verse 20 and 21, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, would transform our lowly bodies that they will be like his glorious body. There's this, there's this perception in the world that one day maybe we'll evolve past physical bodies. Or if we were really spiritual, you know, in heaven one day we'll finally get to fly away and not have to struggle with the physical world anymore. Have you seen that Sprint commercial where he says for life, free phones for life, and they show like every hundred years until eventually there's this person who's a ghost, and as if to say one day we're going to evolve into that. But that's not at all what the scriptures teach. Bodies are good. The physical world is good. And one day when you receive your new resurrected body, you will hug, you will eat, you will dance, you will run, you will worship, and you will work. Revelation 22.3 says you will work, you will serve for eternity, but in a way that is life-giving because he will trade your old body for a new body. So why is it that the Easter message teaches us? Or why is it that it, that it means that the, the worst thing is not the last thing? There's a second reason here in our passage, and it's because God will trade earthly pain for eternal pleasure. God will trade earthly pain for eternal pleasure. Verses 40 and 43, I love what Jesus does here. He shows up and he asks the question, what's for dinner? Now, in the Bible, sometimes we read these phrases and, and we think that everybody in the Bible like spoke with Bible language, right? Like, you know, the old translations say, you know, give me something to eateth, right? Like Jesus wasn't using religious terms here. Jesus just shows up and says, what's for dinner? What are you eating? And they give him a piece of broiled fish. Early on, skeptics of the Bible said, well, there's no way they could have given Jesus fish. He was in Jerusalem. He wasn't near the coast. They didn't have fish in Jerusalem, which that is ludicrous. Actually, the Old Testament teaches in Numbers 13, 16, that Jerusalem was a hub where they would take fish from the Mediterranean and sell it in the heart of Israel. Jesus' greatest miracles involved five loaves and two fish. 
What impresses me about this story is that Jesus took time to enjoy simple, ordinary pleasures. He enjoyed pleasure prior to his death and resurrection, and here he is enjoying pleasure after his death and resurrection. Jesus ate dinner with his friends. Now, how does that fit in the perspective of the Bible? Well, actually, it fits from beginning to end. You see, the Bible teaches that God created all things. You remember what God said about his creation when he was finished? He said, it is what? He said, it is good. Creation is a good thing. He looked at the animals and said they're good. He looked at the trees and said they're good. Creation's a good thing. God created good food. God created these blessings we call life. By the way, one of the greatest ways to reach teenagers or students or even kids is to show them that the devil didn't create pleasure. God created pleasure. You see, if they grow up and they think that, well, the devil created pleasure and God created all the stuff that's not fun, who are they going to want to serve? But if we can teach them God created sex, God created food, God created joy, God created happiness, then they can understand we serve a good God who creates. But unfortunately, sin breaks. Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. They were tired of him being king and they wanted to be king and they were kicked out of the garden forever. If, I, if Adam and Eve hadn't chosen to sin, I would have chosen to sin. And God tells us in the book of Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all things. Nobody can understand it. When we sometimes think of sin, we think of, well, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal, I don't kill. But Jesus took it to a whole nother level. He says, if you lust, it's as if you've committed adultery in your heart. If you hate, it's as if you've murdered somebody with your hands. That thing that you desired to do this week, maybe you didn't do it, but you wanted to, but you knew you couldn't get away with it. Or you fantasized about it, you dreamed about it, or, or you did it and you thought nobody saw, God saw. And sin has broken us, not just from the outside in, but from the inside out. And one of the greatest evidences that the Bible is true is that we live every day experiencing what God says about our sin and we know it's true. God creates, but sin breaks. Thankfully, Jesus saves. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and he didn't just show up on Friday and die and rise again on Sunday, but he lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. And he died the death to pay for our sins on the cross. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, and because he died, because he rose from the grave, God is not only saving us, we have the opportunity to be saved, but God wants to save planet earth. God one day is going to not only transform us, but God is going to restore all things. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth because what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Read with me about the new heavens and the new earth Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw 
John writes, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, picture this, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. What a beautiful picture. They're different, but they complement one another. Just as man and, and woman were made for one another, heaven and earth were made for each other. The spiritual isn't just good and the earth isn't just bad. But God says he made all things for our pleasure and for his glory. And he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is a verse some of you need this morning. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. If you've ever read any of Edgar Allan Poe's work, you know that he's a rather dark poet. Uh, you can find silver linings in his poetry, but I'm thinking of one particular poem called The Raven. Edgar Allan Poe writes in The Raven over and over again. He points to life's pleasures, and then he says, nevermore. Or that was a, an English way of saying, never again. Never again. So he, he talks about people who are in the prime of life and enjoying their beauty and their physical health. And then he says, nevermore, <laughs> never again, it's going away. He talks about loved ones that used to walk with and eat with and enjoy and post Poe writes, nevermore, never again. Meditating for this sermon this week, I've been thinking about things in my life and things in our family that are never going to happen again or almost never happen again. And it can be quite depressing. Uh, yesterday we gave the girls, we were going to give the girls their Easter baskets and we realized we only have three more Easter's left with Katie before she goes off to college. Like three more Easter's at home. Now I know she's going to come home every year for the 20 years after she graduates for Easter. I know she's going to do that. But you know, like, like, and, and now we're at the phase where we've kind of outgrown the Easter baskets. The girls are like, you know, hey, just give me the candy in the Walmart bag, right? If it's chocolate, that is good enough. But it's one day it's going to be never again, right? Yesterday I was running with a good friend and we were down in Madison, but down at the uh, softball fields right there underneath the interstate. And as we were running around, he was telling me that his daughter used to play softball on the fields. She goes to Marshall now. And he said, you know, uh, she, ever since she was four until she graduated, she played softball right here. And you could just hear it in his voice. Like, sh she'll never play softball here again. Like, never again. Think about that time when you, you look back at those pictures and you considered it to be your, your best years, when you, you looked the best and you felt the best and, and now you remind yourself, never again, never more. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, if I become a Christian, I'm gonna have to give up lots of things. And so I'm just gonna continue to do what I wanna do until the day that I'm tired of it, then I'll become a Christian. You see, no, the message of resurrection shatters all of that. In the resurrection of Jesus, you lose nothing. 
you lose nothing. The greatest pleasures on earth are nothing compared to the pleasures of being in the presence of Christ and a heaven and earth that are not cursed and a body that has been made new. You think about loved ones who've gone on before you in heaven and we mourn them, yes. I got a brother buried over in St. Albans and, and thinking about the fact that I never got to meet him. He died of cancer at age two and a half, three months before I was born. And you think of the, some of you have experienced the loss of a child. I don't pretend to understand. That by far has to be the hardest thing you have ever experienced. But I can declare to you that the resurrection means that the worst thing isn't the last thing. God tells us there is hope, there is more. And this morning, if you have never known the joy of that hope of becoming a Christian, my prayer is today that you will call on the name of the Lord to be saved. I can't promise you if you give your heart to Jesus, that life's always gonna go your way. I can't promise you that if you give your heart to Jesus, you're gonna be rich. I can't promise you if you give your heart to Jesus, you'll make it one more day. But I can promise you if you commit your life to Christ, you will be grateful for eternity. Because Easter means the worst thing is not the last thing. We see one more reason why this is true in the story of Easter morning. And that is that God will trade our panic for peace. God will trade our panic for peace. In verse 36, Jesus shows up and Jesus says, peace be with you. Before he shows up, they're panicking because the king is dead. After he shows up, they're panicking because... The king that they knew was dead is now alive. No matter who you are, no matter how much you love, no matter how much I love my grandpa, he's been dead three years. If my grandpa walked in the back doors, it's going to be a, a panicking experience, right? Like this just doesn't happen. But Jesus said, ah, peace be with you. I want to offer you tranquility and flourishing and wholeness and, and rest and comfort and harmony in your soul. The peace of Christ is both a fact and a feeling. In the New Testament, the idea of peace uh, is this idea that just comes because we know we've been made right with God. We call it having peace with God. And the other is the peace of God. The resurrection is proof that God the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The resurrection was kind of like a receipt it means that we know our sins were paid for on Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross, but the fact that he rose from the grave, we, we have a receipt. How many of you, I'm curious, have a Sam's Club membership? Anybody have a Sam's Club membership? Okay, just about everybody. Sam's, you know, has the theme. If you can fit your arms around it, you didn't buy it here, you know. Uh, as a kid, I used to love that big old container of like five-gallon drum of jawbreakers. My dentist is still trying to fix it, Right. Uh, but you leave Sam's, what do they do? What do they ask for when you go out the door? 
Yeah, they ask for your receipt. Now, I really don't think they read it. I mean, maybe you work there, maybe you do, but I kind of like to watch and see how many seconds, right? I'm just that OCD, like Tom, and how many seconds? You got this big old long receipt, and they're like two seconds, yeah. And they haven't even looked in your, in your, anyway, maybe I'm the only one. Really need to get a life. Um, <laughs> what does that receipt mean? The receipt is just simply saying, it's paid for, you're free to go. It's paid for, you're free to go. And when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he was saying, your sins are paid for. You are free to go. You can have that fact, that assurance. He's accepted the sacrifice for your sins. But it's also a feeling. Just knowing that Christ is with you and that you're right with God gives you peace through the worst of anxieties. I'm thinking of World War II, back when they had blackout in London, really all throughout England or the UK. We find that they would uh, tell people they couldn't go out at night. They had to turn their lights off. Church bells couldn't ring for months because they were afraid it would uh, would bring on more bombing. But after VE Day, when the Nazis were ultimately defeated, they were dancing in the street. One story says they would ring the church bells for hours on end and taking turns ringing the church bells because they hadn't been rung for months. What were they doing? Why were they dancing? Why were they singing? Because they knew they had peace. And this morning, I invite you to recognize the peace of Jesus Christ because of what he's done for you. You too can have peace. Maybe there's a man or woman here and you're sick or your spouse is ill and you're really wrestling with your peace in your heart. Maybe you have a sick child and you're losing your peace For you, Easter means that the worst thing is not the last thing. Maybe you're a leader and you're in a job that feels like a dead-end job. It's not the job you wanted, but here you are. You're in this job, but you'd love to be doing something else somewhere else. I wish I could tell you that, well, if you follow Jesus, he'll give you a happy job. I hope he does. He wants you to live abundant life. But as you look in the New and Old Testament, abundant life doesn't always mean you get what you want. You see, American Christianity's raised a bunch of spoiled babies, and me included, we think that if we love Jesus, he's going to make our life easy. But instead, he says, well, I can't promise you an easy life, but I can promise you that Easter means that the worst thing is not the last thing. Maybe you were abused as a child. Maybe somebody has hurt you deeply as an adult. Maybe you've lost something or you've worked so hard and there's something you can never work hard enough for. The message of Easter is that the worst thing is not the last thing. Imagine how this would help us if we really believe this. Imagine how it would change my life and it would change your life. I know I wouldn't be so easy to give up if I really believed that the worst thing is not the last thing. 
I'm thinking about Winston Churchill. He went back to his alma mater and they asked him to give a graduation speech. He walks up to the podium with his cane and they're expecting this long, drawn-out speech. And he had a few preliminary words and a few concluding words, but the heart of his speech, one of the shortest graduation speeches ever, was this. He said, never, 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 never give up. And the message of the resurrection for you is never, never, never give up. This week I was reading through 1 Corinthians 15 and it's like 58 verses on the resurrection. One of the longest chapters in the New Testament. And you get to the end of this treatise on the resurrection. What advice would Paul leave people with? You would think Paul would say, I just told you about the resurrection, so just hang on till heaven because it's going to be wonderful. It's not what he says. Instead, Paul says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, your work is not in vain. The resurrection helps you not to quit. Think about how the, the resurrection would, would help you continue to serve your neighbor or to serve the city of Charleston or the Canal Valley. We have a vision of being a church Charleston can't live without. And one of the things we, we want to always do is connect that to the resurrection. We don't believe we're going to bring in paradise. We're not going to bring in paradise to the Canal Valley because we're a church that's engaged in business and a church that's engaged in, in health and serving the poor and serving the least of these and stepping into adoption foster care. We do not believe in our staff meetings that if we do it well enough, that one day, wow, one day, heaven won't need to come because we're going to bring it ourselves. That's not why we do this. You know why we do it? Because every mouth you feed and I feed is just a little billboard it's just a little picture. Every, every child that we love and, and every gospel that we give through word and works is just a little picture that says, this is just a taste of the resurrection to come. If we really believed in resurrection, I know I would enjoy life more. I believe you would enjoy life more. Here's what I mean. Today, if you believe that Jesus rose from the grave and that the physical matters, you can enjoy Easter dinner. You can enjoy Easter. You don't have to go and be like, well, I had the spiritual thing at church. Now I'm going to have. No, you can enjoy. You can get out the nice dishes. You know those dishes you haven't got out of the cabinet in like 30 years? You know, the collecting dust. Use the nice dishes today. Jesus is alive. If you believe in resurrection this week, you can take a walk through Canal State Forest. You can go for a jog, go for that motorcycle ride. In a couple weeks, some of you are going to enjoy some turkey hunting. Don't feel guilty about taking off work, unless you work here and you've turned in your vacation slip. But, but <laughs> we can enjoy. Think about what that would do if our neighbors saw us enjoying life that way. All of a sudden, we would go from being curmudgeons to being people who genuinely believed in resurrection and people would want what we have. It would change everything. Last week I was preaching about giving God control of your life and one of our members, Bob Jones, gave me permission to use this. He sent me an email on Sunday afternoon 
and just sharing how the message had spoken to his heart. Bob has a rare blood cancer. He was diagnosed seven years ago. And this morning, Bob, if you notice, Bob sang right up here, the far top right of the choir. Usually when the choir's singing, I like watching and looking at everybody. I know most of their stories, and I love what God's doing in their lives. But I always make sure I watch Bob. Bob wrote me this last Sunday. I was diagnosed with rare blood cancer over seven years ago. I have no control over that. After trying several medications that didn't work, I realized I have no control over that. Finally, a weekly injection helped, but its manufacture was ended, and I have no control over that. Another type was begun, and I've been on it about two years, and I undergo weekly blood tests for almost eight years, and I have no control over that. But I have realized God is in control of all things, whether we understand it or not. The blood cancer may progress to the point it will end my life, but I have no control over that. I do know, however, God is in control and knows what the future holds for me. He told me this last night and I wrote it down. Even if I die, one day I will rise from the grave. I will get a new body that has no blood cancer. And then he finished his email with this last week. Until then, I am determined to continue to live the best life I can and take advantage of each day God gives me because I know he is in control. What does Easter mean? Easter means that the worst thing isn't the last thing. Why? Because God's going to trade your old body for a new body. Because God's going to trade your pain for eternal pleasure. And God's going to trade your panic for peace. Easter means that the worst thing is not the last thing if your faith is in Jesus Christ. Please bow with me for prayer. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask today, how many of you would say, Pastor Matt, I know that if today were my last day on earth, I know one day I would go to heaven I know my spirit would go to heaven and I know one day God was going to give me a new body because I know I'm a Christian. Pastor Matt, if I died today, I'm 100% sure that I know that I know that I know I am on my way to heaven. I'm not perfect, but there was a time in my life when Jesus became my Lord. I know I'm a believer. Would you slip up your hand, Pastor Matt? I know I'm saved. I know I'm a Christian all over the room. Thank God for you. Put your hands down. I believe this morning there are some, and I saw you couldn't raise your hand. Why not make today the day you become a follower of this Jesus? There's no set prayer in the Bible, no magic words for becoming a Christian, but he says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. One man went up into the temple and he just prayed, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Maybe that's the prayer you need to pray this morning. And Jesus said he left the temple justified, saved. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me in your heart. If today you want to become a Christian, you can pray it in your heart right there where you sit. Here we go. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner, but I know you love me anyway. 
I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe he rose again. I believe he can save me from my sin. Please come into my life. Make me a Christian. Help me follow you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I won't do anything to embarrass you. I want you to trust me. But I just want between you, me, and the Lord, I would like to know. Say, Pastor Matt, I prayed that prayer. I prayed it. I meant it. I'm glad that I did. Would you slip up your hand for a moment? Pastor Matt, I prayed it. I meant it. I'm glad that I did. Right in my seat. Thank God for you, sir. Right here in the middle. Thank God for you, ma'am, down on the left. Thank God for these two. Anybody else? Pastor Matt, I prayed it. I meant it. Thank God for you back here in the middle. Thank you, ma'am. God bless you. Three of our adults. I prayed it. I meant it. I'm glad that I did. Anybody else? Say, Pastor Matt, I prayed that prayer. With heads bowed and eyes closed, you three who raised your hand, I just want to give you a word of encouragement. God sees you, God hears you, and God answers your prayers. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today, before we leave, let's connect, or let's connect this week for sure. I'd love just to put something into your hands so you can have a Bible and know for sure that God's promises are true, that you're on your way to heaven. After a moment when we sing, I invite you three and others, if you just have a prayer request to slip back to the prayer room, if you'd like somebody to pray with you and encourage you, we have men and women ready back on my left, you're right. But I'm praying that today is the day when we all realize the worst thing isn't the last thing. God, make it so in Jesus' name. Please stand with me and let's sing with all of our hearts to the God who gave all for us.